How can five different groups of Opportunity Zone stakeholders come together to make the program a success? And what can we expect the Biden administration to do with Opportunity Zones? Find out next, as I'm joined by Steve Glickman and Ira Weinstein. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. On today's episode, we'll be discussing some of the top Opportunity Zone issues and considerations for 2021 and beyond. Joining me on the show today are Steve Glickman and Ira Weinstein. Steve Glickman is founder and CEO of Develop LLC, an Opportunity Zones advisory firm. Steve was formerly co-founder and CEO of the Economic Innovation Group, where he was instrumental in designing and championing the Opportunity Zones legislation. He is known to some as the godfather of Opportunity Zones. Ira Weinstein is Managing Principal and Opportunity Zones Practice Leader at Cone Resnick, a professional services firm. Late last year, Steve and Ira collaborated on a new book, The Guide to Making Opportunity Zones Work. Steve joins us today from Washington, D.C., and Ira comes to us from Baltimore, Maryland. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having having us. Absolutely, guys. Really, really excited to have both of you on the program today. So we're recording this episode in late January 2021, and currently we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. So I'll ask both of you, you can both chime in, how have community development needs evolved and become even more urgent as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, so, so I think, I mean, I, there's some obvious issues, uh, just the, the mere fact that uh, the, the public health crisis, that COVID-19 have had a pretty devastating economic uh, implication in a lot of places. I think in any sort of crisis like this, low-income communities are going to be the first ones to suffer and often suffer the most. So I, I think that's been largely true here. Um, I, I think, obviously, uh, lots of people uh, living in these communities have been forced to be out working consistently, not necessarily working from home like like Steve and I can do, uh, and often are those essential workers that we all rely on, and that puts them in greater harm's way. I think it's also true that um, while there has been actually an increase for many in wealth, a lot of the people working in these communities have not uh, enjoyed that same benefit. So I think the, the sort of the critical elements of uh, daily living for a lot of people in these communities has suffered their disposable income and maybe suffered as well. So I think the economic activity in these spaces has really been constrained. At the same time, I think there's been, as we'll get into, I think over the course of this discussion, I think there's been a greater sense of urgency for others who want to have an impact. And I think that's where Opportunity Zones can play a big role. And maybe the silver lining is that uh, maybe this shines a greater light on the plight of these communities and the opportunity to make things better for everybody. I, I think uh, I did a great job at um, describing the situation on the ground. Maybe I'll provide a little bit of the public policy layer to this, which was always a big part of the rationale behind Opportunity Zones, which is that in the midst of everything Ira describes, we have less and less capacity to actually address the core economic problem. Um, What you see happening in Washington now is really a band-aid to keep people 
um, in their houses and off food lines um, through the you know the stimulus packages. But if you look at layered farther down, one of the biggest impacts I think of the last um, you know year or so has been that states and cities are going broke. Their tax base is evaporating. Um, their budgets are on you know a thin thread. And a lot of the anchor institutions that, in particular, opportunity zones were built around, and that many of these communities' employment bases are built around, whether they're healthcare and hospitals or education and university and colleges, are also feeling an immense amount of fiscal pressure because of the fact that students aren't in classes and um, a lot of the ways that hospitals made money through elective surgeries isn't happening anymore. And so that means that a lot of the building blocks of getting communities. Uh, back in a good place are are not there anymore. This may be even a worse scenario than we saw um, during the recession a decade ago. And that really leaves the private sector, uh, which to Iris' point, you know, if you look at if you think about this as a K-shaped recovery, the large companies and 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 the wealthy investors who have done so well consistently over the last 12 months, we really need them as a country and as communities for them to step up. And fill this gap because uh, because I don't think the money and the resources are going to come from anywhere else. I think Jimmy too. If I could just follow on to that, um, we really hadn't gotten. I mean, the, the whole need for opportunity zones came out of the Great Recession and the uh, the inequity in in how things recovered and the fact that so many of these communities were left behind. And before we really got to final regs and and as we got the final regs and, and we're in a position to really kind of launch forward with opportunity zones, getting hit with the pandemic, and on top of which having all the social unrest that ensued and impacted a lot of the communities, communities of color, communities that happen to be opportunity zones or have implications to those communities. Um, I, I think that that urgency was just uh, front and center for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I, I do I do believe that. Um, what Steve describes and, and the policy implications, I think we're actually going to be headed into a really positive direction because I do think that going forward, there's going to be a lot more interest in making a bigger difference and for a longer time frame. I hope that our mindset has shifted into thinking more long term than, than we ever have and being willing to appreciate um, the need for some level of, of equity in the uh, sort of the economic infrastructure we have. Well, I agree. I agree with uh everything both of you gentlemen said. I, and I think it's a, a brilliant program, obviously. I'm a little bit biased. I've been working in the industry for a couple of years now, but uh, I, I just love the fact, I love how the, the, the legislation crafted or the, how the policy is crafted such that it's an economic incentive for private investment. And it's, it's really more or less hands-off um, from any sort of central authority administering the program. But that said, there are some things that the federal government can do to ramp the program up or down, uh, and we are in a new administration now. S Steve, you served as an advisor in the Obama-Biden White House prior to your founding of the Economic Innovation Group, so I'll turn to you to chime in on this next question first. How do you expect the Opportunity Zone program will evolve under this new Biden administration in the coming years? What changes do you think we can expect? Thanks for that question. I was talking to a reporter who who follows Opportunity Zones um, a few months ago, right, right after the election, actually, and he asked me, 
a very similar question, but more along the lines of how soon is the Biden administration going to, going to get rid of the program? And I said, well, I'm not sure I accept your premise. The uh, now President Biden did a big event around opportunity zones when he, after the time when he was vice president, um, his vice presidential nominee then now uh, the vice president, one of her first events in the, uh, upon joining the ticket was doing an event on opportunity zones in Wisconsin with African-American voters and telling that group of voters they wanted to double down on this program. And, you know, uh, the, the president's chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, was, you know, the right-hand person to Steve Case, who was one of the big champions, uh, Jared Bernstein, one of his chief economic advisors. So he said there's a lot of people around the president who have a lot of skin in the game in this program. and you know, want to see it continue to succeed and grow. And he goes, well, why do you, why do you think that? And I said, well, maybe they think it's a good idea. There's this, there's been this notion, I think, baked into some of the coverage of Opportunity Zones over the last few years for, you know, some legitimate reasons and for some other reasons that this is a Trump program. And that really could be farther from the truth. This program, you know, was created years before um, Trump was president and is really embraced, not just in D.C., but as you probably know, Jimmy, by mayors and governors around the country, many of whom, if not most of whom, are Democrats, because it's become such an important tool in the toolbox. And I think the same thing is true going forward. If you look at one of the few things, one of the few programs the Biden campaign pointed to, one of them was Opportunity Zones as part of the way that this administration was seeking to address racial um, equity issues. And I think it's clear that President Biden and his administration is looking to double down on the question of not just inequality broadly, but racial inequities in particular. Uh, and as anyone who's studied the OZ map knows, you know, 60% of Opportunity Zone communities are non-white. You know, these are African-American and Latino communities around the country who have, in many places, disproportionately um, been able to have success raising money through the Opportunity Zone program. Think places like Baltimore and Detroit um, and Cleveland and other markets um, you know, that really struggled to fundraise. So I, I suspect the, the, the Biden administration, having had some conversations in, you know, in the past with folks who are now in the administration, um, are, see this as a blank slate one they can add to any number of priorities, not just racial equity and community development, but also things like how the administration addresses uh, small business growth, um, infrastructure, uh, clean energy, uh, and any number of, of other issues. Um, and so I'm, I'm very bullish on what, what the administration will do to run with this program in the coming years. It's much more than regulatory changes, I think, at the margins, which you may or may not see. I think those will be relatively unimportant to most of your listeners and most of the market. I think it's much more how OZs are kind of built into the fabric of how we think through government spending and government building and investment programs for large. Can you go into more detail on that? What do you, what do you mean when you say built into the fabric like that? I understand that um, regulatory changes at the margins, maybe, maybe there's some more data collection um, that that's been that's been brought up a lot, but but can you, can you go into more detail on what you mean by 
how how the federal government can can weave OZs into the fabric of of the economy? Yeah, well, my basic view is that Treasury has done a lot of what it needs to do in terms of defining the rules of the road to the program. As you know, you know, Jimmy, to your point, that this is a program that is very much where the, where the investment kind of goals and objectives are defined by the private sector, the federal government has still created 200 pages of regulations to ensure that there is, you know, the spirit of the program is met in as many ways as possible, primarily that there's, you know, economic growth connected, long-term economic growth connected with the investments that happen through this program. And they may do some tweaking at the margins in terms of, you know, data collection or other, you know, rules, uh, maybe the biggest one the government has to deal with is how to deal with the census and the fact that we're going to have changing census tracts and how that overlays with the OZ program, which is, you know, a complicated question. But but I think in the scheme of things, these are going to be at the margins. What I mean by weaving this into the program is you may see other agencies are now much more important stewards of the program. So, for example, if you're building infrastructure and prioritizing projects, if I were in the administration, I'd be prioritizing projects in opportunity zones. These are places that have been picked by governors and mayors in almost all cases, and uh, because that they were deemed to be the most important places places to receive that next drop of investment, and that could be one way the government prioritizes spending. Or as we look at how we provide uh, preference in terms of small business contracting benefits, or or state and federal venture capital or R&D dollars. We should be prioritizing those businesses that are either in or willing to relocate to opportunity zones, you know, around the country. And there are many, many, many examples of where we build telecom infrastructure. There are many, many examples of where increased government investment would serve the purposes of the program and the communities, because that would in turn send the right signals to the market that they should be doubling down on these communities because they're going to see more economic growth going forward. That's where the government is the biggest buyer as a spender of $4 trillion a year can have a, the biggest impact on these communities and, and on the program and it's less about the program really and, and just how to target this so that federal dollars are really going to places that need it and that are, have been dramatically underinvested in for the last few decades. I was just going to say, if I could add, Jimmy, I, I think that while, you know, Steve's comment about um, those that have the premise that uh, or, or put forth this premise that the Biden administration isn't in favor of or, or would do away with the program. I think what you see is is almost the opposite. I mean, the, the fact that there's so many people that are being nominated for positions inside of agencies, commerce, treasury, uh, folks on the Council of Economic uh, Advisors, folks that seem to have a really- Transportation. Um, in, Transportation is obviously a big one. I mean, they have a very interested and um, uh, kind of experienced approach to economic development, and I think really understand the power of this tool and particularly the way that it can interact with other tools um, that are often used around economic development. So I think that level of um, what I think will be collaboration across agencies, so it may be a little different than what we heard about in the White House Revitalization Council, but but uh, hopefully a much more impactful outcome, actually. And I think Steve's point about uh, the governors and mayors, uh, that is a place for some unity and some bipartisanship at a local level, which I think can really affect the sort of psyche of people around opportunity zones to the extent that the collaboration occurs not just across the federal government, but amongst federal, state, and local government. And I think that 
very few people would be uncomfortable with the more significant level of, of transparency and reporting to the extent that it's going to create a greater opportunity for everybody. And I think that uh, that that whole notion of tracking the community benefits and being able to think differently about, as Steve mentioned, things like infrastructure and, and small business finance, those things are going to create a greater diversity within the program. It'll, it'll help us get beyond it being a predominantly real estate program and beginning to really support other asset classes. And I think that's what's going to create the kind of momentum that's critically important. We've got some good momentum to build on. I mean, the, the statistics that are out there in terms of the level of investment, notwithstanding the fact that just after the final regs were, uh, were published, we had a global pandemic, you've still seen a lot of money flowing to these areas. So imagine what can happen if there's a real concerted effort with folks that have a real focus on economic development and are willing to bring uh, more of the, uh, the capability of government and, and to that sort of public-private partnership to make this thing uh, really something special. Yeah, certainly the potential for dramatic transformation exists if uh, everyone's rowing that boat in the same direction, so to speak. Uh, Gentlemen, are there any geographic regions or industries that you expect are going to be especially ripe for Opportunity Zone activity this year? I think that um, we started to see a lot of, uh, and this is all anecdotal, it's not necessarily um, well-analyzed data, but I'm interested to see where things go with um, rural communities, because we've started to see a lot more examples of folks getting really innovative. Um, so as a geographic matter, matter, really interested to see what happens in some of these rural areas because there's been some good momentum there. And, and just generally in, in some of the uh, sort of non-major metro centers where I think that um, there's a big need that may be fueled by a sort of out-migration from big urban centers. Um, at the same time, I think some of the urban centers are still uh, so large and, and so in need of um, economic support that, that Opportunity Zones can bring and also have some level of, uh, of existing infrastructure to support economic development, I think you'll start to see some of that increase as well. And then we're particularly excited to see uh, what we think could be a really interesting opportunity around uh, more of the operating business context. We are starting to see some folks get more interested in um, things like um, what I would call um, sort of small-scale manufacturing and interesting technology applications to those kinds of uh, businesses, I think that can get really interesting because it has some real uh, compelling job creation opportunity, and it's obviously a bit different than the traditional real estate focus. Yeah, I, I agree with Ira. I would um, maybe just go a step further and say if, you know, last year, at least for me, the big test for the market was around geographic diversification and you know whether the program was going to be getting to more than the you know the top markets like new york and, and los angeles that typically get a disproportionate amount of uh, investment and what i think one of the most interesting trends of last year from the data we've been able to see from groups like real capital analytics and uh, cbre is that um uh, it was the second-tier markets that Ira described that were getting disproportionate amounts of investment. Where you saw the growth, the highest was in places like Baltimore and Detroit and uh, Birmingham, Alabama, um, Philadelphia, and other markets like that. That's you know also because the base was lower there, 
but it was, um, you know, in my, at least for me, amazing that you actually saw a decline in places like Seattle and Portland and Miami. Um, so there does seem to be an, an organic trend, at least for investors picking less expensive markets where land prices are cheaper and where, you know, long-term, if you're looking at this, in a, you know, over a 10-year horizon and not a, you know, two, three, four-year horizon, your investment um, strategy, I think, looks different. But for this year, I do think the big question is going to be diversification into different, you know, asset classes, at least. Um, you know, I think this past year, not just OZs, and OZs, you know, really follow the overall private equity investment markets. You saw a huge disproportionate focus, I would argue, on multifamily. Multifamily is always going to be a big asset class in this program, but I do expect you're going to see other asset classes um, begin to bounce back um, as people take advantage of cheap assets and things like retail and hospitality and office. So I do think you're going to see more of that this year. And then to Ira's point, I think you're going to start to see these other verticals, particularly that I, I would call real estate adjacent verticals that can take advantage of the really generous um, uh, depreciation, accelerated depreciation benefits you can get in opportunity zones around um, industries like manufacturing, clean energy, um, infrastructure, and others that I think will track nicely with some of the public investments that I think most people expect to see. So watch for that. There are this this could be a very interesting model to do. For instance, energy and infrastructure investing um, at great um, at great scale. And I think too, it, interestingly, some of the the cities that Steve mentioned, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that many of those cities invested in their own economic development in infrastructure and around opportunity zones. I mean, the, the, the collaboration, some of those places, I think of Baltimore, uh, some of the other places Steve mentioned where we see it in uh, parts of Birmingham and Cleveland, places where there was a concerted effort to make sure that there were people that were either hired to do things specifically around opportunity zone or a lot of investment made in making sure that uh, there was that sort of critical mass of knowledge, awareness, and collaboration. And that's where I think that whole sort of compelling uh, federal meets uh, state and local government can really have a big impact. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. I mean, this is, I think this is a really important point that gets lost. This notion around OZs being a, a, a way to prime the pup in these different parts of our ecosystem is an important point, at least to talk about a little bit more so people can understand what's really happening on the ground. Well, let's talk about that. Go ahead. What do you mean by prime the pump? OZs are not your traditional community development program. I, IRA has as much or more experience than anyone else in the country around working in our you know, traditional programs that have been around 20, 25 years, like low-income housing tax credits and historic tax credits and new markets tax credits. Um, those are really important programs. I hope we double down on investing in them. But they're also, I would call them closed programs in that they tend to happen within their own ecosystems and they tend to you know have their own kind of captive sources of capital these are a little different they require um, different uh, public and private sector things to happen alongside of it it's they're just you know the equity or part of the equity deals and so what they're really designed to do is not to solve for economic inequality but to prime the pump from both the public and private sector to focus and work together on solving problems and so or, or solving the problems in these space. So if you look at really successful cities, and I think Baltimore and also in particular places like Birmingham and Erie are really good examples of that. 
the local community got together with their stakeholders, whether it was the you know insurance companies or a leading role by the mayor or in Alabama, the case of a public private entity to on their own accord, you know, take ownership, for lack of better words, of the, the future of, of their cities and their states and come up with a long term plan, pull the stakeholders together, begin to identify and publicize and market their pipelines and really attract investors. And I don't think Alabama or Erie would be having as much success or frankly, maybe any success, if not for the fact that it primed the pump for those local stakeholders to get engaged. And the same thing is true on the private sector side. This is really meant to just be directional for the investing community to change people's mindset about the fact that if they're investing in real estate or other private equity deals, they should be looking at second-term markets. There's no reason not to invest in them. In fact, the investment thesis, it could be a lot stronger because of the fact you're offsetting the risk with lower, lower pricing. And in that way, it's supposed to, choose, you know, the idea is to change capital flows from more expensive markets to less expensive markets and also where people are going. And I think that that's a very interesting trend that it could correlate to post-recession, which is the trend of people moving out of expensive cities to less expensive ones because they may no longer have to be in the office in the same way they once did, or they may value being closer to family or closer to green space. And that may change the you know dynamic of how investors invest. So it's meant to prime the pump on that big conversation. And if you look at any critic of the program, um, including someone like, you know, a group like the Urban Institute, which has been critical of it, they say unequivocally that this program has created a whole new ecosystem of community development, organizing, and investing, and new fund managers around the country. And that's something we shouldn't lose sight on, sight of, rather. Yeah, that's a that's a very good thing. I think um, you mentioned Erie and the state of Alabama. I think you're referring to the Erie Downtown Development Corporation, among other groups there that have done a tremendous job of building out an opportunity zone prospectus for their community. And in the case of the state of Alabama, uh, I believe you're referring to Opportunity Alabama, the uh, statewide deal marketplace, for lack of a better term, created by Alex Floxbart. Is, is that right? Do you have anything else to add there? No, that's exactly right. And I'd say that if the, you know, the state of Alabama wasn't getting like hand over fist investing, and the city of Erie wasn't either. I mean, Alabama is one of the, you know, has over the last several years been one of the poorest states economically in the country. Erie is one of the poorest cities. And so they're great examples of places that have shown that um, with the right level of local and statewide organization, you can change the narrative in those places. Alabama has a billion dollars in OZ deals. You know, Erie has gotten a, you know, $50 billion commitment from, you know, one of its largest companies. And that's something we shouldn't just want, but expect to happen in other places around the country. Um, because increasingly, you know, we need to get back to this idea that our, you know, the, our companies um, and our, the private sector have to take ownership over this issue or we're not going to be able to solve it. And there's no excuse not to do it because if Alabama and Erie can do it. And they would say this themselves, I think, if you talk to the leaders of those groups, anyone around the country can do it. And I think, Jimmy, that's for now still, we, we did a, a whole chapter in the, the book that Steve and I wrote that you alluded to earlier on this very issue, this idea that, you know, there is sort of a framework for uh, any locality to really roll up their sleeves and figure out how to 
um, make this a cornerstone of, of their process, their economic development programming, and find ways to establish the opportunity to collaborate, really take stock of what they have, what are their strengths and weaknesses, and how can they be most valuable to those investing from inside or outside of their communities, and doing it in a way that's really beneficial to the residents, the existing small and large businesses, the way to leverage the anchor institutions, the way to really bring everybody together to figure out how to do this, rather than it being what I'll call too opportunistic around just a, a, an opportunity to do something in isolated places within a particular community, but a concerted effort to really focus on the entirety of, for instance, an opportunity zone geography and really think, I think, um, be discerning about how to really make that happen and for the benefit of everybody in that whole process. And I, I think that Steve's right, there's, a, there's nothing magic about it about doing it, the magic is in how you do it and who gets involved. But the notion of doing it is something that I think every uh, locality should engage in, and it's a relative thing. They may pour more or less resources in, in it depending on what those strengths and weaknesses are. But I think that there's um, there really is a nice framework as to how this can be done and why it can be really valuable for everybody. Right, right. Yeah, let's let's talk about your book now, The Guide to Making Opportunity Zones Work. In your book, you identify five different types of Opportunity Zone stakeholders, and I'd like you guys to, to go through each one very briefly. Maybe you can give our listeners a key lesson that each type can, can learn or to go forward with if they participate in Opportunity Zones. The, the five different types of stakeholders that I've counted that you identify in your book at least are, one, Opportunity Zone investors, two, the Qualified Opportunity Fund managers, three, real estate developers and deal sponsors. Four would be business owners and entrepreneurs, uh, those who are looking to establish qualified opportunity zone businesses within OZs. And then five, you know, the, the group that we've been talking about here the last few minutes are opportunity zone community leaders. And, and really you encourage all of these stakeholders to turn to that last group and to work with their opportunity zone community leaders as, as you two believe, as I do as well, that really... Uh, the community is what this is all about. The, the local community and developing a cohesive, holistic strategy within each community is what really can make the Opportunity Zone engine go. So could you guys go through each one of those different types and, and give a quick lesson that, that each one can learn? Maybe we can start with OZ investors. Yeah, and let, me, let me start, Jimmy, by saying that I, I think the whole purpose of the book was to provide some education and, and deal with some misinformation that we thought was out there and do it in a way that was comprehensive, but not necessarily a technical treatise, that it was more kind of a layperson's guide. And so in part to identify the stakeholders, but then think about which stakeholders haven't been participating. So on the investor side, I think that this idea that it's been to date primarily those kind of high net worth or family office type folks, we wanted to provide something that said it could be as democratized as anyone with capital gains all the way up to a very sophisticated institution and provide a framework for all of those folks with the expectation that the more investors of any stripe that came into this effort, the better we would, the better off we would all be. And so we really set out to try and explain what investors need to be mindful of and kind of where, how critical their role is, but I think Another part of the uh, the 
rationale for the book was to dig into each individual stakeholder, for instance, investors, but make sure that investors, as well as every other stakeholder, understood the benefit of uh, collaborating with every other stakeholder, and so they could sort of um, appreciate what the nuances for each person's role was, and therefore that this sort of collaboration would be more effective. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I was going to make the same uh, uh, contextual point, um, and Jimmy, to dive into your question on investors. Um, in some ways, they're, in, investors have, in some ways, the lowest burden in this program. Um, they, 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 there's a bit of a fire and forget for most investors where they get to, um, you know, have the money that they're looking to put into the OZ program managed by a third party um, fund manager. Um, and the compliance burden of this program really falls on the on the fund managers. So there were kind of two pieces, I think, to what we, we described when we were talking about investors. One, if you're that kind of investor looking for a third-party fund manager, which I think is, you know, more often than not what we see in the program, uh, um, then you're really just evaluating, you know, for the most part, a lot of the same things you would be evaluating now in the, you know, private equity context. Um, you know, what, what's the track record of the fund manager? Do I agree with their thesis? Um, you know, am I comfortable with the underlying assets there? And so, you know, a lot of the extra complications from OZs, I think, are less important to many investors. Now, there are there are all sorts of investors that have their own funds, you know, these captive fund investments you might see with like a single family office. And obviously for them, they're really operating more like the fund manager. And, you know, that's a much more complicated way to invest. Um, and But for your typical investor, there's not a lot to understanding the program other than, you know, you've got to stay invested for 10 years to get the full benefits and you need to do a really good job diligencing the underlying fund manager and what they're investing in. Right. But for a typical opportunity zone investor who is passive, a passive investor who's investing in a third party fund, you know, you do your due diligence and you write your check and then there's really nothing else for you to do for the next uh, 10 years, hopefully. Uh, let, let's dive into that second stakeholder group now that, that you mentioned, Opportunity Zone Fund Managers, or the, the Qualified Opportunity Fund Managers, which uh, sometimes are, are also Opportunity Zone investors themselves. What are, what are some lessons there or some points for QOF managers to be aware of? Well, I, I think to be aware of, I, I think Steve made the point uh, in talking about the investors that the, the fund managers, oftentimes there are folks that are going to take on fund management where they've got infrastructure in place and, and they're looking to effectively just do the kind of private equity activity they would otherwise do, that asset management. They're just doing it in the context of an opportunity, of an opportunity zone. So I think there's obviously a significant compliance burden. There's a fiduciary responsibility. And I think that this is really the nexus of the program, right? Everything happens, most of, of what's contained in the statute and the regulations revolves around what an opportunity fund manager will ultimately be responsible for doing and managing to ensure the compliance. I, I think the challenge is that for some that get excited about the economic development potential and think I can manage a fund, but they haven't done very much of it, there's a, a huge burden because this is complicated stuff in any situation with the added burden of compliance. I'll call it a burden because I think there is a lot of things to be considered and the extent to which you got to be mindful of what you're doing for the benefit of not just the investor, but the ultimate investee 
And I think there's no question that that whole community focus, as we'll get into, um, is important. So I think there's a role to not just be managing a fund, but to really be sensitive to all of the nuances to what's going on. So I, I don't think it's for the faint of heart. And I think for those that have successfully managed funds, uh, be it private equity, venture capital, what have you, um, understanding the the implications of uh, community stakeholders and keeping them happy, as well as balancing the compliance issues is challenging. And so we wanted to lay out all of that in a really kind of understandable format uh, so that people could appreciate what those nuances were. I think to the extent that you have that, that captive fund where uh, it could be as, as closely held as somebody has their own gain, they're an investor, form their own fund, they've got to figure out all the things to manage, it gets a whole lot easier if they're then investing in their own asset. And I think that is certainly something we're seeing a lot of but even those folks need to appreciate um, what the compliance implications might be. And I think that as we go back to one of your earlier questions, what this new administration may do, I, mean, I think there's some that have mused about whether or not the whole self-certification process is a little too simple and may create uh, as part of this ecosystem, a lot of folks that are maybe less capable than anybody appreciates. And so hopefully either because things get ratcheted up in terms of how certification occurs, if that does happen, or just the mere fact that the book can be helpful to folks having a greater appreciation for how high the bar may be, uh, I think that'll be you know helpful to uh, to growing this space. Steve, anything else to add there? Or do you want to move on to the next group of stakeholders? I think Ira did a great play-by-play, -play, so I'll, I'll give the uh, two pieces of color commentary. One is I think what's especially complicated about doing this program is the fact that OZs are at an early stage, which means the rules are evolving constantly and so it you know we had three rounds of regulations that were ultimately you know the last round the final round came in december 2019 so you know two years into the program and but but even since then if you look at the past year we've had probably three different rounds at least of covid related rules that have been that have changed different timing deadlines for the program and unless you're paying really close attention to that um that can you know that can i think throw you off pretty quickly the good news is most of the i think all the covid stuff has provided more flexibility so you may have a lot more flexibility as both an investor and as a fund manager than you recognize but there's lots to keep track of and that's not even on top of a lot of the other things we're discussing which is how these rules play into things happening at the state and local level and how they factor into other programs as well the other the other piece um uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of say in, in uh, you know, in thinking through this program as a, as a fund manager is that, you know, for the most part, there, there, are, there are so many new, the OZ, the OZ kind of marketplace is made up of many, many first-time fund managers. And it, doing that requires, I think, a great amount of, you know, resources up front. It requires help, the ability to be able to have good, um, accountants, not, not just because I was on the phone, but in general and tax lawyers and fund administrators and really having a team behind you becomes, you know, a really important piece of, I, I think, doing this well and doing this right uh, and competing in the marketplace. And what's unusual for fund managers, even with that team, is the way you raise capital. You know, most private equity fundraising is done through tax exempt sources. You, that money is raised through um, endowments 
It's raised through pension funds. Um, it's raised through, you know, non-tax sensitive investors. And you're really doing hand-to-hand combat, as Ira and I think have both described it at times <laughs> in raising from retail investors here. And it requires having to do an immense amount of education um, and, uh, and, you know, talking to lots and lots and lots of people. So I think it's quite challenging. And it's in some ways amazing that in the first two years of the program, we've seen tens of billions of dollars of almost exclusively retail fundraising. I mean, there are no significant that I'm aware of, or very few at least, significant institutional investors in this program, something I think Ira and I both want to see change this year as some of the more risk-averse investors come in now that we've got a little bit of time under underneath the program. Um, and, you know, still, you've seen success all around the country. We, have, we You know, there are a thousand funds or more around the country um, and growing. And so this is becoming a huge, you know, marketplace. And I also, I would just quickly add, Jimmy, to, to Steve's point about the hand-to-hand combat. I think the most familiar refrain we hear from folks that are fund managers in the space is how much harder it is than they ever thought it would be. And and many of us have, have followed the headlines of all these folks that were going to raise, you know, it was pretty commonplace for folks to say they were going to raise somewhere between half a billion and a billion dollars or more. And very little of that has actually happened because it is that hard. And I don't think that's a bad thing because to Steve's point, we've seen so much activity on the fundraising side and a good percentage of that being deployed. I think that that it, it makes people a little leery, which is not a bad thing, but hopefully they have an appreciation for how complicated it is and how important that collaboration is. Yeah, yeah, well well said there. I, I have seen, uh, you know, several uh, $100 million plus funds celebrate successful closings and full fundraises, but yeah, a lot of those, um, a lot of those half a billion or billion dollar plus funds uh, did not end up uh, working out quite as they had expected. Let's dive into the third type of stakeholder now, real estate developers and deal sponsors. I, I think these may have been the first really a group of people who really first latched onto the program when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed at the end of 2017. Um, any any lessons or takeaways for them? Steve, I'll turn to you first. Yeah, uh, you know, real estate developers are a very common, as you know, constituent stakeholder in the OZ program. I think the, I think there's two big mindset changes that um, that you need to have to be able to do this successfully. One relates to time, which is maybe the most important. This is a program. This is a a program where investors expect to stay invested for at least ten years. In many cases, more than that, and that means not just having a longer term hold um, from maybe what a, a traditional you know development developer style investment you know would be in you know three or four years, um, but it means combining the ability to do a lot of different things within one um, you know within one investment doing the the development and and the construction of the building stabilizing the asset you know finding a tenant and then managing it successfully over the next few years in the cash flowing uh, asset you're combining really all three major types of real estate investing you know um, development value add and core real estate investing in one product and that can be a complicated thing for I think developers or anyone, um, and a complicated thing to also explain to investors. So, uh, so I think that question of time is one of the key differentiators. The other thing is there are a lot of real estate developers who have raised equity 
um, for projects before, but they're typically not doing it within a fund construct. And so the, uh, the need to be able to do the, some of the compliance we talked about as we were talking about OZ fund managers on top of all the complications of doing a real estate deal, you know, I, I, I think at least I found in the market can feel foreign to a lot of, you know, real estate developers who haven't raised money and managed it in that kind of context. And so, I, you know, I think you've, what you've seen happen in the market as a result, and I think this is increasingly so, um, even as the rules have made clear that, you know, managing, for example, a multi-asset fund is, is, quite, is quite doable and will give you all the same benefits as managing one asset, you've still seen this move to single investment funds because they're much easier for investors to understand and they're much less complicated from a um, compliance perspective. And I think that's how that's really played out in terms of projects. You see a, a lot of OZ funds structured as, uh, as a, a set of parallel um, OZ investments that are all operating on their own timetable. And so, you know, that reduces some of the complications, I think, for uh, particularly developer-led deals. And if we can just move on quickly here, because I know we're running out of time here, uh, we'll move on to the fourth type of stakeholder, business owners and entrepreneurs. Really, it wasn't clear how qualified opportunity zone businesses could qualify uh, or be eligible for the tax incentive really until the second tranche of IRS regulatory guidance was released in April of 2019, about a year and a half after the program was first rolled out. And then it, it wasn't super clear until the final regs came out just uh, December 2019. But but certainly, I think we're seeing a little bit more happen in that arena now with business owners and entrepreneurs. Any any key takeaways or, or lessons there? And uh, Ira, I'll turn to you for this one. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, our experience is what you described, that, that we're starting to see a, a trickle of activity, but, but it's not nearly enough. But this, to me, is the holy grail. If we can get those entrepreneurs and, and kind of operating businesses really hooked on this this concept and, and really willing and, and the acceptance by fund managers and investors to really go in this direction, I, I think that's what's going to make for success of, of opportunity zones. And I think that it's directly tied to the real estate piece, to Steve's earlier uh, point about the tenancy. Um, ultimately, you know, these businesses, notwithstanding what we're experiencing with the pandemic, they're still going to need a place to be and a place to, to grow their business and a community, a neighborhood to kind of have that, um, uh, to create that multiplier effect in. And so I, I think that this is something that we're, we're very optimistic about. We're starting to see some signs in certain industries. Steve alluded to a bunch of them earlier. And um, we do think that there's a lot of activity happening, a lot of places that um, I think going to push this uh, uh, to a much higher level in 2021. I think that the infrastructure activity and the clean energy um, what we're hearing at least about the clean energy opportunity that the federal government can support. I think that's going to have a big impact on this, but I also think the emphasis that the new administration is placing on the small business side of things is going to be really, really interesting too. And hopefully this, this chapter really gives folks a sense of where they fit in. And our fifth and final stakeholder, which we've already talked about at great length, but maybe briefly we can touch on one more time here. Opportunity zone community leaders. Any any key lessons there? Any best practices that you've seen? I, I can take a stab at this. I'll be real short, in case, so you can jump in too. I have, I think, one guiding principle here, which is that places that are interested, and I think every place is, 
in attracting investment beyond their normal investors, beyond their communities. Um, it, the most successful way to do that is to show that there's local skin in the game, i.e. to show that there is that the city is aligned with the program and willing to put its own land use, you know, provisions on the table in accelerating getting deals done and the private sector has to show it's investing in projects as well. I think places again like Erie and Birmingham and others, Colorado, you know, rural Colorado who have shown the willingness and the ability to do that are now attracting outside investors who are seeing momentum in those markets, but people aren't just going to come invest unless they see that local alignment. And that becomes, I think, the critical way to think about this as a community leader. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the key with the communities, uh, it, it's collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. And I think that's both to and from the community. And I think the stakeholders in most localities are very diverse. And um, I think there are differences of opinion uh, all over communities in this country and differences of opinion as to what they think of opportunity zones, often based on what they may misunderstand. And so I think it's key that community stakeholders come together take a proactive approach to this, really get to know not just the sort of tenets of the program, but the motivations, the intention, all of which I think by and large are very, very good among the other stakeholders. And so to us, to a large extent, you put the community in the center of this, because that's really what was originally envisioned, and you create an opportunity for you know, the money to make its way through the fund management system, to make its way to businesses, real estate or operating businesses that the community can benefit from. And I think the community has to be put at the center of that, but it means giving them a an appreciation for what that means and how to do that sort of prospectus, if you will, um, to make themselves attractive and to leverage uh, all of their strengths and to shore up their weaknesses. And I think that's really what we're hoping to accomplish overall in, is is to make sure that there is this uh, sort of more equitable um, recovery in these communities and um, the community just has to be at the center of it. Very good. Uh, Ira, I'll turn to you now. How, how can all of these parties identified in the book here, these five different stakeholders that you and Steve have identified, how can they all work together to make the most of opportunity zones in 2021? Have you seen any, that, any best practices uh, that have been most successful? Well, I, I, we, we have spent a lot of time talking about it. The best practices exist, I think, in the localities where there's been a concerted effort, usually starting with a local government kind of making an investment in the public-private partnership and, and in kind of dedicating some resources. And, you know, I think that's the whole, really the point of the book is to say each chapter that speaks to the specifics of a stakeholder is valuable to understand the nuances of that particular stakeholder role. But the key really is, the sort of holistic nature of, of this whole ecosystem and how everybody needs to just appreciate the challenges everybody else faces and why everybody's sort of in this together. So I, I think it's just that. It's literally working together. I think that's a whole lot harder sometimes than people appreciate. So if it happens, I think we will see success. And the more it happens, the more success we will see. Let's hope so. Um, Steve, ultimately, what needs to happen for Opportunity Zones to reach their fullest potential? One, I think we should take pause and stock of the fact that this program is having an enormous amount of success. And in some ways, it's a shame that the headlines have been so tied into making the telling the political narrative in this as it relates to the Trump and the Trump administration. But the fact that you have a brand new community development program that has raised 
tens of billions of dollars in this first year, while at the same time finalizing the regulations of this program is, I, I think, an amazing achievement of the ability for the government to have a big impact on the market. And to give you context here, the next largest program, the New Markets Tax Credit, employs about three and a half to, you know, maybe now upwards to $5 billion a year. This program is deploying four or five times that in its first couple of years. And NMTC is capped, whereas OZ's theoretically is limitless. Well, yeah, and that was the whole, that's the trade-off in the program. When you, when you, when the government has, one, when you're not talking about a tax credit, at, you know, at the front end, and you're really trying to align these long-term back-end um, goals, um, it is unlimited. Um, the government has a bit less control over what actually gets invested in, but it can create, and it is created, shown it, it, it will create a much larger marketplace. I think we need to continue you know, the alignment. We need to see one, I, I think more institutional and corporate investors, banks, insurance companies, large companies that you know can and, 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 and you know benefit from the program and should be more invested in it. And I think we need to see more aggressive public policy making to align uh, state and federal priorities around where government money is being spent to these zones. If we do, I think those two set of things, I think you're going to see an enormous turnaround in communities people had written off for the last couple of decades. And it may be one of the most remarkable uh, public-private um, policy achievements I'd say we've had in 50 years. Agreed. Let's hope so. Ira, what about you? Do you have anything else to add there? Ultimately, what needs to happen for OZs to reach their fullest potential? Well, I, I think that... Um... To a large extent, it's going to be getting beyond the rhetoric and getting into just everybody rolling up their sleeves and making good things happen. I think that I've been all over the country listening to people talk about and talking with them about opportunity zones, among other economic development efforts. And I think that um, we're at a time when I think we can really make a difference. I think a lot of things are really um lining up unfortunately came maybe largely out of the pandemic and, and the racial unrest over the summer. Uh, but I think that we're at a point where we can really see people um, being a little bit more socially responsible, wanting to have a greater impact, uh, wanting to work together. And that means institutions and individuals. And so I'm incredibly optimistic about what will happen in the year and years ahead and the way in which I think a lot of these stakeholders will work together and will have great success. And, and make this a pretty democratized thing. It would be wonderful if we could look back, you know, 10 years out and, and see situations where anybody that had even a little bit of capital gain could find a way to have that be accumulated and, and reinvest in their own community or something cool happening in another community that happens to be an opportunity zone. And, um, you know, that, that to me would be uh, really, really cool. And if it was holistic, where the kinds of things you saw were incredibly diverse, um, that would be even better. That would be absolutely, Ira. I agree. Well, Steve and Ira, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me today. Before we go today, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Develop Advisors and Cone Resnick, and of course, where we can go to purchase the book? Well, the, the good news is that uh, I work very closely together with uh, Cone Resnick and vice versa, so you can find both of us, I think, through the other. But uh, Develop has a website, Develop Advisors. I um, encourage everyone to go to Cone Resnick's website to buy the book. It will get you directly to the link through Amazon, uh, where the book has or, you know, seen a lot of success in the short period of time. I think we're leading a bunch of different categories around regional development and urban planning and tax and, and other issues. So a big credit to the Cone Resnick team that really drove 
drove the book, and we're we're super proud of it. Thanks for giving us time to talk about it. Uh, so the book's on Amazon, and uh, our website, uh, KevinResnick.com, has a link to the uh, to the Amazon uh, spot. And um, I, you know, Steve mentioned a little bit about uh, what we what we're seeing in a short period of time around some success with the book, and we're excited about that. We're really excited, mostly because if we can play a small part in helping to get folks better educated bring more people to this marketplace and dispel some of the misinformation, then I think um, uh, we'll have made a small contribution to making this a much more effective effort. Well, I, I love the book. I, you know, it's, it's not very technical. It's, it's not terribly long either. I think it comes in at under a hundred pages. It's really a, a very nice um, introductory guide, a high level overview of the opportunity zones program for each of these different stakeholders that, uh, that you and Steve identified really, really appreciate the job that, both of you did in putting this book together. Uh, for our listeners today, as always, I will have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Steve, Ira, and I discussed on today's show. And of course, I'll be sure to link to Steve and Ira's book, The Guide to Making Opportunity Zones Work. Steve, Ira, really appreciate both of you joining me today. Thanks for coming on. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks Good talking to you, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.